Welcome to Reframe and Reset Your Career, a career development podcast to help if you're looking for a job, feeling stuck in your career, looking to change your perspective, or just rediscover your why. I'm your host, Harsha Borolesa, and this podcast came about from my passion for neuroscience and psychology and their interaction with career and personal development. In each episode, I will be interviewing recognized experts and successful professionals and asking them about their career journey, their real life experiences, and to share the insights and strategies that have helped their careers thrive. Implementing change is not easy and does take time, but I do hope that their stories will inspire you to take a fresh look at your career and assist you on your path to a more successful and fulfilling career. Here are some highlights of today's episode. Because if you don't tell people, you know, if you're just thinking about it, I don't think it's going to happen. When you're going through it, it's very, very painful because you think, why do I not know what I'm doing? And why, why don't I know where I'm going when everyone else around me seems to know? Even the most painful situations, you can get something out of it. So I often have students asking me, should I apply for this job or this job? I don't know which one I'm interested in. And I often say to them, especially if they have very little experience, apply for both. Thank you for joining me today on episode 31 of the Reframe and Reset Your Career podcast. I'm delighted to welcome Dr. Conson Locke. Welcome, Conson. Thank you, Harsha. Glad to be here. Conson joined the London School of Economics in 2008, where she teaches leadership, organizational behavior, and negotiation and decision-making. Conson has over 30 years' experience as an educator, coach, and consultant working in Europe, Asia-Pacific, North America, and Australia. Prior to entering academia, she served as a regional training and development manager for the Boston Consulting Group, where she was responsible for the learning and development of consulting staff in 10 offices across Asia-Pacific. Constant holds a PhD and MSc in business administration, organizational behavior from the University of California, Berkeley, and a BA in sociology from Harvard University, where she graduated with honors. Her new book, Making Your Voice Heard, uses the research on power and influence to help people speak up to those who have more power than they do. Welcome, Constant. Thank you. So, Constant, I'm a big fan of the arts. Is there a performer, song, book, or film which you'd like to share with our listeners? This is not the test of coolness, so it doesn't have to be obscure. <laughs> there is a novel that I read recently over Christmas. So I enjoy fantasy novels. And I thought, well, if it's fantasy, can't we have a world where women are equal to men, where it's not patriarchal? There must be a fantasy novel like that. I have to tell you, they're really hard to find. But I found a good one called The Priory of the Orange Tree by Samantha Shannon. Cool. And it was really interesting because I remember reading one bit of the book where there's a pirate captain, like this dreaded pirate captain that everyone's afraid of. And then eventually you meet the person. And it turns out it's a woman. And I remember kind of being taken aback and thinking, wait, why am I taken aback? That I should not be surprised. It was just so refreshing to read a book like that where women could be warriors or um, nurturers or, you know, and, and men could be as well. It just didn't matter. 
Oh, wow. No, that's a great insight. And and it's interesting, I think, that you, a lot of people, they see um, you know, other famous people in the media or people of note. And actually, if you don't see people like yourself and you know, in terms of diversity, mm-hmm. then sometimes you have these limiting beliefs about what you can achieve. So you know, I think that's another debate about diversity, which I think obviously is very important. But yeah, I think that's you know, such, a, such a great point. Yeah. yeah brilliant. Th- th- thanks for sharing that. So, um, Constant, after graduation, you seem to have worked in a couple of roles in Boston. I think it was more in the nonprofit area, but then moved to Hong Kong to work in manage- management consulting, ended up with ending up with Boston Consulting Group. So how did you find that sort of arc? Was there any particular strategy to how your <laughs> career evolved? No, there was no strategy at all. When I graduated from Harvard, I had a bachelor's degree in sociology. And I mean, what do you do? What do you do with a bachelor's degree in sociology? Um, My dad was really annoyed with me, actually, because obviously he was paying for my Harvard education. And at one point, he forced me to take an economics course because he's like, I want you to study something useful. And I fell asleep. I went to like three lectures, fell asleep in every single lecture. I was like, I'm giving up on this. But so, yeah, I had no idea what I wanted to do. I ended up in nonprofits because the company that I had been working part-time for, where we were teaching in the Boston public schools, um, they kind of took pity on me and said, well, we'll hire you full-time now that you've graduated. And I was like, okay. Uh, and then from there, I went on to another nonprofit in Boston called City Year. And that was just a friend told me about it. And I thought, oh, this will be interesting. And then I had this, let's see, shall I say, I had a crisis in my personal life. I was 27 and I had just broken up with my long-term boyfriend and all my friends were getting married. And I was like, I don't want to be here anymore. Plus I was tired of being poor, you know, working for nonprofits. So my father was living in Hong Kong. Uh, My parents were living in Hong Kong and, and he said, well, why don't you come out here and, you know, get a real job. And so I went out there and I was looking around. I ended up just by chance stumbling on uh, working in management consulting because one of the people I had worked with in Boston told me that her nephew was opening up an office for monitor company. And did I want to work for him? And I was like, yeah, okay, why not? (laughs) Um, And it was like double the amount of money that I was making in nonprofits. I was like, ah, rich. This is amazing. I didn't enjoy it because it was all about spreadsheets and numbers. And I cared about people. And part of what I started doing, because I didn't enjoy the actual consulting work, was I started working with the new consultants who were joining us. Like we didn't have an HR department or training. And I managed to reach an agreement with them that I would spend 50% of my time on consulting and 50% of my time helping these new consultants with orientation. And, And that was when I realized I really like teaching adults. And so I thought, I know, I'll be a training manager. So by then I was probably 30, 31. I started applying for training manager jobs and I got rejected from all of them because I had no experience in HR or training. I was not qualified for the training manager job. And then so I applied for training coordinator job, which is the more junior one. And I got the response that I was overqualified. And that's because I was old. You know, that's another way of saying you're too old to be this junior person. Um, So I got really frustrated I ended up taking a job that that I found out through a friend with the Richard Ivey School of Business, um, setting up their executive MBA program in Hong Kong, which I thought, okay, it's not a training manager job, but it's education. So I'm moving in the right direction. One day while I was in that job, I saw an advertisement for a training program and I thought, well, this will be really useful. I asked my boss for permission to go. And I went to this training program 
And what I was doing at the time was every time I met someone and they asked me what I did, I would tell them what I was doing, but I would say, but what I really want to do is become a training manager. And so that's what I told these guys, you know, I'm working for the Richard Ivey School of Business, but what I'd really like to do is become a training manager. Okay. Two weeks after the training program finished, I got a phone call from one of the people that I had met at the training program. And what he said to me was, you know, we didn't tell you, but we are vendors that work with the Boston Consulting Group. And they've just told us they're looking for a regional training manager. Would you be interested in talking to them? Wow. I was like, yes, (laughs) I would. I'm trying not to, you know, my boss was like sitting behind me. I'm like trying not to jump up and down in my chair going, yes. So you spoke Um, it into existence then. (laughs) I mean, it took me a long time from the moment I realized I wanted to be a training manager to the time I got the job at BCG was probably two years. And there were times that I was like, this is never going to happen. This is never going to happen. But I just kept thinking of myself as a training manager and telling the thing is you tell everyone, this is what you want. Because if you don't tell people, you know, if you're just thinking about it, I don't think it's going to happen. No, I, I but, just love I yeah. just love that story constant. I mean, there's so many interesting things there. The whole idea of you do a subject which your parents don't like that much. Um, I, I was very obedient and I did economics with accounting at LSE. Oh. So, <laughs> but, but I'm, I'm sure I slept in a lot of lectures. Uh, and it's funny, my favorite subject, and I think the the lecturer is still there, um, Mike Power, Michael Power. Mm-hmm. He he yeah. did auditing and accountability. I found it fascinating which I don't know whether that says something about me or his teaching, but also that whole idea of having a linear path because, you know, so many of my guests, and I, and I like to have sort of different guests on who uh, don't have that, you know, A, B, C, and then suddenly they're a, a grand fromage. You, you go through these changes. And, and I think sometimes when you have those difficulties, you actually see what you want to do rather, and, and go for that rather than, okay, I get, you know, I graduate from LSE with a first and I get into investment banking. I stay there for Mm -hmm. 10 or 15 years. And then you think, what am I doing here? And then, and that's, I think, equally as uh, discombobulating if you're in in that situation. So I love that sort of nonlinear path that that you took. And, you know, fantastic to end up with BCG in Hong Kong. So, you know, that's a great move. Obviously, after BCG- One thing I should say, though, it's very painful. When you're going through it, it's very, very painful because you think, why do I not know what I'm doing? And why why don't I know where I'm going when everyone else around me seems to know? Oh, no, I think I think that's a great point. And, and especially if you look at your peer group, they, they seem to have it all going on. But but sometimes mm-hmm. I think they appear to be all right. Yes. But actually what's going on under the surface is not that great. So you yes. should be very careful about looking at other people and comparing yourself. Um, exactly. and, it, and it's funny, we, I spoke to a, a colleague of yours, um, uh, Dr. Grace Lorden uh, from the LSE, and she also made the, sa- the same point about you, you need to just focus on yourself and, and, and worry about your own game rather than somebody else's game. But, yeah. but sort of post-BCG, um, you've moved back into academia. And obviously, mm-hmm. it's worked out really well back at the uh, at, well at the LSE, um, mm-hmm. and, that, and obviously you're a, you're a professor there. So, um, what was that sort of journey like? Because obviously, I think you left Hong Kong to go to Berkeley. Is that right? Yes, that's right. I was getting a little bit bored in my training manager job. I I found I had a five year cycle where the first couple of years I'm learning a new job. The third year, I've pretty much got it down. The fourth year, I'm getting a little bit bored. And the fifth year, I am completely bored out of my mind and I need a new challenge. 
So with BCG, the same thing was happening. I was around the fourth, fourth and fifth year. I was like, what am I going to do next? I don't know. I was getting tired of the travel because I was regional. And so I was traveling about 30, 40% of my time. And there was no career progression in that role. Because I talked to BCG about it and they were like, well, I don't know, we could, we could give you Australia as well if you want that as a region. And I was like, no, not more travel. <laughs> so, so then one of my friends was coming through Hong Kong on a vacation. I was like, why are you coming through Hong Kong? And she said, oh, well, I'm about to start a PhD at Berkeley. And I just thought I'd have a really big trip you know, before I go. And I was like, how can you afford to do a PhD? And she's like, well, if you get in, they give you like, it's fully funded and wow. they give you a stipend. And I was like, oh, really? I didn't know that. Ooh, maybe I could look into this. Because I thought, okay, if I go into academia, then I can continue teaching adults and not have to travel. What I didn't realize at the time is that an academic position is all about the research, not the teaching. So I was like, ooh, I'll look into that. And so I did you know, I did the GRE while I was working full time and I put in all my applications and I thought, you know, it's a long shot, but I'll try. And I applied to five schools that I thought those would be really great schools to get into. And if I don't get in, then I stay at BCG and I make it work. Um, and I got into Berkeley and I was like, okay, well, that's all I need is one, <laughs> one yes. And there I am. So it was funny. I ended up at the same school as my friend. And then when I discovered that academia is actually about the research and not the teaching, I was like, mm, yeah, I think I can do the research, which I did at the LSE. You know, I was on the research track or the normal kind of academic teaching and research track for the first five, five or six years. Um, but after about three years, I was like, I don't like the research. And I really, you know, I don't want to publish in these academic journals. I want to do something that's more widely available to people, which is why the book really got me excited. Um, so now I'm actually on a track where I don't have to do the research. I can focus on teaching, administration, and publishing things like books. So it's, it's I mean, I'm, I'm so thrilled. I, I've basically, it's been a really winding path, but I'm, I'm in a place where I'm very happy. And I'm not having a midlife crisis, like a lot of my friends are, because I'm new, I'm in a new industry, you know? No, I, I just love that. And, and what I particularly like, Constant, I think, is that the way you sort of reframe things, because you got to sort of five years at BCG. And, you know, for some people, they think, OK, I've got the experience. People know me. I'll just stick it out. But actually, I think when you're in a situation where there's no career progression, then actually that's quite a dangerous situation to be in because you know how much value can you add they can always bring somebody more junior in and I think it's really um, a helpful lesson for people out there always think where you are in terms of the value you're providing um, and because you, you just don't want to be in a situation where they can get say one person or maybe two people who are paid half as much as you come in and do your job because you know, what is it that you're really adding to the company so I, I just love that story. And, and, and it's just taking control and power back from your employer and, and creating the agency for yourself. Um, do, do, do you agree? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think, and for me, it wasn't, I didn't think of it as taking the agency back from my employer. I actually always saw it as I'm on a journey. So my focus was always on me and my journey and how is that journey going and oh, wait, okay, the journey's not going so well right now. I'm really getting bored. I need something new. That, that's the way I focused on it. No, no, that, that's brilliant. And obviously moving on to your book, Making Your Voice Heard. Um, I've loved reading it, really, really enjoy it. And, and I think it really uh, 
dovetails in well with the theme of this podcast because it's very much about strategy, long-term things, because it's like one of those cliches, you can't fix things overnight. You know, Rome wasn't built in a day, Mm -hmm. but it it is so important about putting in the work on a daily basis over a long period of time. So would you like to just give a brief overview of the book and who it's aimed at? Yeah, sure. So the book is all about how do you influence people who have more power than you do? Because I've always been interested in power and influence but not downward, upward. So I'm trying to change my boss's mind or I'm trying to influence my parents or my teacher or or even my colleagues because they're kind of on the same level as me. But these are people who don't have to listen to me. So how do you get them to listen to you? How do you, how do you um, change their mind or influence them? And it's always been something I've been interested in. And the more I teach leadership, the more I realize there are a lot of tools out there that can help us learn how to do this. So it was really exciting for me to be able to put it all into a book. Basically, I think of the book as three sections. There's a fourth section, which is kind of a bringing it all together. But the three main sections are, first, think about your inner self. So what do we need to do to, to deal with that inner self? So it's things like imposter syndrome, building up our self-confidence, our resilience. So I've got a section on that. And then the next layer is the face you show the world. So it's things like the body language, the nonverbal communication, the influence tactics, you know, how do I phrase something to make it more influential? So there's a whole section on that. And then the third layer is the context that you're in. So the cultural context or gender biases, you know, these are other people's views that you need to adjust to. Um, and so there's a whole section on that. And so this is what I think of as upward influence or influence in general. You need to be working on all three layers. And I, I just love that summary. Uh, I'm, I'm probably just going to focus on the first two, the inner and the the, uh, the face you show the world. So if we if we just talk about that, you know, the first couple of chapters where you talk about communication and you talk about the four channels of communication. So it's you know words, voice, uh, touch, uh, and, and visual. And as you say, a lot of emphasis is placed on body language. And this, I think there's that uh, statistical research about 90 plus percent is effectively body language and the words are, you know, Mm -hmm. uh, the rest. But would you like to expand on that? Because I think that's not quite the case. Yeah. One thing to keep in mind. So that research, you'll see it all over the, um, the internet and it is real research. But the thing to keep in mind is that research was looking at what matters when you are trying to communicate an opinion about something. And of course, if you're trying to communicate an opinion about something, as opposed to say communicating the budget or the facts, then obviously the nonverbal stuff matters a lot. And one thing we often forget when we think about nonverbal, we think of body language, but actually the voice is a much, actually maybe not more powerful, but equally powerful channel, meaning the tone. So if I if I say to you, oh, I like your haircut, okay, versus, oh, I like your haircut. All I've changed is the tone of my voice. And you know that's why it matters so much because I'm expressing an opinion and you can tell in the first one, I don't like the haircut and the second one I do. So it's, it's just one of those things where if you're, if you're conveying an opinion, you do have to be very careful about your facial expression, the tone of your voice, all of these things, because it will matter more. 
I love your haircut, Constant. <laughs> <laughs> Is that enthusiastic enough? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> anyway. <laughs> But yeah, I mean, really, tone of voice and facial expression are two things we don't pay enough attention to, and they convey a lot. But obviously, words are important, you know, yes. without a doubt, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, words, words definitely count. I think it's just we often forget that the way we deliver those words can change the way they're received. Oh, no, no, totally. And and then you, you go into talking about owning your space and you know confidence and how, how we can look and sound more confident through eye contact, voice and posture. Um, yeah, I just love that. Would you like to maybe expand a little on that concept? Yeah, basically, if you use the, the nonverbal behaviors that research has found are related to looking confident, and essentially they are the things we teach in presentation skills training, then not only will you look more confident, but people will actually think you're more competent because we confuse the two. And we actually think when someone sounds and looks confident that, oh, they must be pretty good. It's, it's something to use to your advantage, but it's also something to kind of protect yourself against because narcissists are great at looking confident. And so if, if you feel like you're being really impressed by someone and you're like, why am I being impressed by them? You should ask a bit more you know, ask for details, ask for, like, if you're interviewing them, you know, give me an example of a time when you, whatever, and, and you want to basically get more specifics to understand if they are as good as you think they are. And, and I think that's a really interesting point. And even from the, if you're interviewing with a company, just because the, the, the guy or the girl is giving you uh, the good spiel about how wonderful this place is, I think you really need to dig deeper and really understand, you know, okay, what are my career prospects like? Um, who am I going to be working with? People fall in love too quickly with uh, companies or people, or even if you're a stock picker, you fall in love with a company. Don't do that. You always have to have a, a distance uh, because it yes. can always change, can't it? Yes, absolutely. And you should definitely use the interview to ask questions. I've been through a lot of interviews where, where I was the interviewer. And at the end, when you say, do you have any questions for us? And they say, no. And I'm like, no, don't say that. Use this opportunity. You can ask, who am I going to be working with? You can ask, what is my typical day going to look like? You can ask, what is the culture of this company? There are so many things you could ask that would be really helpful. Totally love that. And now moving on to the inner self, because I think this is so important, you know, uh, you know, doing the work on yourself, because I think, yeah, you can change how you present yourself to the world to some extent. But I think what is, um, you know, you, you have long lasting impacts is, is how you change the, the inner game. And I, I love the way you talk about the work of um, French and Raven and the five sources of power. And I think the referent and expert power, they're, they're most relevant for, up, for upward influence. Uh, would you just like to touch on that, Constant? And wow, you really did a good job reading the book. <laughs> <laughs> I wanted to get my value for it, Constant. Yeah. Uh, no. I'm an LSE graduate. <laughs> That's right. That's right. I should have trusted that you would read the book, pick out the important things, ask about those. Uh, yeah. So the basis of power, the expert and referent power are really important. They're essentially, think about it as a reputation that you're building over time. And the stronger that reputation, when it comes time for you to actually suggest a change to the company or complain about something, 
if you have a really strong reputation up to that point, then they will go, oh, maybe we should listen. If you don't have a good reputation, they're going to be like, yeah, whatever. And and it's it's a long-term strategy. So the expert power is basically people respect you for something, for some kind of expertise. It doesn't have to be an expertise on the particular thing that they're discussing at that moment, but it has to be an expertise in something that's important. So they have this respect for you so that when you talk about something, whether or not it's related to your expertise, they go, oh, maybe we should listen. The referent power is people want to work with you. Like they want to have this good relationship with you. So you have a reputation as someone who's great to work with. Maybe you've worked on a lot of committees and everyone's like, oh yeah, Constant, she's always dependable. She's um, She always delivers what she says. She'll tell you honestly what she thinks. You know, if these are things that people value, then they'll be like, oh yeah, I really want to work with you. And then if you say, well, actually, I think we need to change this, they'll go, oh, okay, let me think about that. So it's really, it's building those bases of power over time so that when you have an opinion, when you have something you want to change, when you have something you want to voice, people are willing to listen and they're willing to take it seriously. But, but I love that point you make about it taking it taking time to put into place because you can't do these things overnight. So really, it's about thinking about your network, how you can build that up, you know, create, create political capital within the company. But also this whole idea of expertise, um, you, know, you can create content, you can write papers, write articles, get on podcasts. And I think the really interesting thing there about, say, if you're working in a company, if you try and um, interact with people outside your company who are credible, then that gives you um, credibility within your company because those people outside yes. you know, don't have skin in the game. And I, I just yes. love that whole idea of you know you not using people, but you know, it's a journey and you're trying to pass on knowledge, but you're getting that uh, seal of approval from you know, you know people like yourself. You know, my podcast is more yep. credible because I've got Professor Constant <laughs> Lock. Um, and, and hopefully when my podcast gets onto Spotify, you can look back and think. Um, <laughs> yes. so <laughs> but yeah, no, I just, I just love that. Yeah. But also, so one thing I always tell people, and I don't think I put this in the book because it's not backed by research. It's just my own personal experience is the first three months of a new job are critical. And for me, it, it does seem to be about three months. That's the time it takes me to really understand the organization, get to know who are the important people. During that time, I would not try to create change. So I've had new colleagues start who within the first few weeks are like, well, I don't think we should do this. And I don't, and you just don't have credibility at that point. You're brand new. Yeah. So just wait, ride out those first three months, do a really good job, build your reputation. And then you can start to think about, okay, what is the change that I want to make? And I, I just love that point because I think it's just about getting your uh, feet under the table, showing people that you are good. And actually, if you're good, it will come across in a meeting yes. or you'll say something insightful. And actually, you don't have to say a lot, but purely by yeah. one or two comments, that, that makes such a difference. Uh, I just I just love that point. And then uh, yeah, in the control of the voice inside your head chapter, you talk about imposter syndrome. And I, you know, we frequently talk about that on, on the podcast. But one thing that was quite new to me was this stereotype threat, which I hadn't come across before. So I'd, I'd love to hear your thoughts about that content. Mm. So stereotype threat, has it's, it's something psychologists have been studying for a long time. And it's mostly in the United States. And it started out by research on um, African-Americans. And it's because there is this stereotype that black people are less intelligent than white people. 
And what they found in studies is if you present someone with a difficult test, and at the beginning you ask for their race, if you force them, like basically that then makes them more aware of their race, which then if they're aware of the stereotype, then they go, oh, I'm black, maybe I'm not going to do so well on this test. And they find that that can affect people's performance so that they do worse. Whereas if you don't remind them of race, they, they can actually do okay. Stereotype threat is this idea that when you're in a difficult situation, now it's, it, it only comes across, it only happens when you're in a challenging, difficult situation. Like if things are easy, then you can go, yeah, whatever. But when it's challenging and difficult, oftentimes we take in these beliefs that other people have of us or these stereotypes that society has. Um, so for example, as a woman, um, so they did this great study actually. So there's a stereotype that women are not so good at math. But there's another stereotype, at least in the United States, that Chinese people are good at math. And so they did this study where they took Chinese American women and they put them into three groups. And so one group, they triggered their gender identity by having them do something in advance where they had to talk about, these were all college students. So they had to talk about being co-ed or single sex living at the university. The second group, they triggered their immigrant identity or their Chinese identity by having them talk about the immigrant experience and where are their parents from and what language do they speak at home. And then the third group, they didn't trigger anything. They just had some neutral questions for them to answer. And then they gave all of them the same math test, very difficult math test, and they found that the group that did the best was the group that had their Chinese identity triggered. The group that did next best was the control group. And then the group that did the worst was the one that had their gender identity right. their, triggered. We have many identities. Stereotype threat is basically saying if the wrong one gets triggered, if the wrong one is kind of front of mind, that can affect your performance. So let's let's manage this. Let's be aware of what we're thinking about when when we're thinking about who we are. You know, I I just love love that point. Um, and you know, I, I mean, for me, I'm not good at tech, but I know that a lot of South Asian people are good at tech. So now I'm going to have to focus on South Asian people are good at tech. Therefore, I can yeah. become exactly. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and I also like this bit about confidence, which you were you know, talking about in the, uh, you know, uh, growing it from the inside out and this whole idea of recalling past experiences. It, it's, a very, it's very difficult to say, how do you become confident? But I think you were talking about recording past experiences, positive experiences. You know, I think, it, say, if you're going into a meeting um, and you're nervous, look at the meetings before that have happened. I mean, do, do, would you like to uh, talk a little bit more about yeah. that, Colton? So this is actually a manipulation that psychologists do when they're when they're doing an experiment on power and they're trying to make someone feel like they have more power and making other people feel like they have less power. So then they then they put them in an interaction and see how that works out. And I thought that's an interesting manipulation because it does work. And basically what you do is you sit someone down and you have them write spend 10 minutes writing about a time when you had power over someone else. And it actually does make you feel more powerful. And I thought, well, why don't we use this in everyday life? If it works in an experiment like that, and the feeling of power tends to last for quite a while. So you do it right before something that you're nervous about, just remind yourself, or even better, write it down, a time when you did really well, a time that you were proud of yourself, a time that you succeeded in something like this, then why not? You know, or even it doesn't even have to be related to what you're about to do. It could just be a time when you were like, wow, I'm pretty good at this sort of stuff, or I'm pretty good. That's why I call the chapter, the voice inside your head, 
because this is all about managing what's going on inside you. So managing what identity am I focusing on? Managing what events am I remembering? Like if you're remembering the last time you failed in a presentation, that is not going to help you. So really thinking about those positive experiences and making the most out of them. And I think for some people who are not very sort of outgoing or don't believe in themselves, you know, just looking back, say, of your CV and, and you know, if you've had a good CV, because, you know, sometimes when I'm updating my CV, I think I can't be a complete idiot if I've you know, got these various mm-hmm. qualifications or I've gone to the LSE, I've got this work experience. And I think mm-hmm. you know, if you um, are looking for that boost of confidence, either doing something physical or visualizing, you know, maybe the interviews that went well, the presentation then went well. Um, I think yeah. it's, it's so important to just flip that switch around because you know, sometimes in the morning, I don't know if you've come across this, that there's that whole catastrophization effect where the first thing you think of is negative and then effectively it's a domino effect. And, and if you can reframe that, first thing in the morning and just catch yourself mm-hmm. and say, no, um, you know, like yourself, you're, you're saying you're a, a professor, the LSE, Harvard graduate, but you know, yeah. that you don't go around telling people that the whole time, but sometimes yeah. you do need to remind yourself, don't you? Yeah, exactly. And it's, I really, I love the idea of a smile file, which someone shared with me many years ago, which is basically a file or a folder of positive feedback that you've received over the years. And so when I get something in an email or even verbally, I'll just type it up. I have a physical folder and I just sit there. So starting a new job is um, very hard on the ego because when you start a new job, you don't know what's going on. Like you're starting completely new. You have no status, you have no credibility, you're, you're trying to prove yourself. So starting a new job was when I normally pull out my smile file and I flip through it and I remind myself, oh yeah, oh yeah, I remember when that happened. Oh, I was pretty good at that. Oh, wow, I forgot about this one. Um, and I really, like that I think is one of the best things that I've ever done. And I, I, I love that. And, and actually also in that sort of section, you were talking about uh, this work by A.B. Cuddy uh, about this power posing. And obviously there are some debates about the you know, some of the research. And, and the other interesting thing there was, uh, there was a chap called Andy Yap who did the, the work. Um, and, and bizarrely, I had spoken to him about a year ago on something else. I think he's a professor at NCAP. Is that right? Mm-hmm. Or, yeah, yeah. yeah. Yeah, really, really nice guy. And he was talking about, the power dynamics within an organization and strategy. But do you want to just maybe t- touch a bit about um, Amy's work? Yeah, yeah. Usually with research, you have multiple authors. And so it, was, it wasn't it was just Amy Cuddy. There were other people involved. But because she did the TED Talk, suddenly, you know, all, all eyes are focused on her, which makes sense. But it's the idea that if you do a power pose, which is a pose where you spread out your body, and you hold it for two minutes, that it will change your physiology in a certain way where your um, cortisol, you know, the stress hormone goes down, testosterone goes up, which makes you feel more confident. And what subsequent studies found was that it didn't change your physiology. And that, that was where all the controversy was. However, those subsequent studies did find that you do feel more confident. So like, it's not changing your hormonal levels, but you do actually feel more confident after it. And so for me, I think that's the important point is if it works for you, then use it. And, and I have used it. I actually, I find there's something about 
spreading out your body like that. I think it kind of, it opens up the chest. It kind of, you relax a little bit. You take a few deep breaths and you just, you calm down because you do it immediately before something that's making you very nervous. So it helps you calm down. It helps you feel like, okay, I've got this. I can do this. No problem. I just love that, the, the whole idea of the, the power pose. And actually, sometimes when I'm on conference calls, I prefer to stand. Um, it's like mm. if you're giving a, a lecture, nobody gives a lecture sitting down because yeah. your power just isn't there. Um, and, and, and also, I suppose- Well, we do on Zoom, oh. we, we give yeah. lectures sitting down and it feels different. Yeah. No, it really think- does feel different. You don't have the energy. But but then sometimes you have to have the body language to, you know, get you going or whatever. Yeah. But yeah. Also, this um, in in that sort of chapter, you were talking about the idea of control, which yeah, I'm just a massive um, advocate of that because I think there's far more in our lives that we can control, and and even say during the pandemic when you couldn't control a lot, you could still try to have some sort of schedule or things that you do every day which give you that feeling of, of control. And, and even in your, you know, when you're looking for a job or you're um, you know, developing your job, that whole idea of control is so important. And I love this point you, you made about growing your circle of influence. Um, Cause I think that's so uh, key into um, so many things. Um, what do you think Constance? So that comes from Stephen Covey's book, The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, which I do um, think it's a great book. There are some really good ideas in there. And this is the idea that we all have a very large circle of concern, which are the things that we're concerned about, but we can't actually do anything about, like the pandemic or the way the country is being run or whatever. And we have a much smaller circle of influence, which are the things that we can actually do something about. And so the exercise that I suggest in the book is that you take a piece of paper and you do two columns. And one column are those things that you're worrying about, like top of mind things, not everything you're worrying about. And then the second column is what what you can actually do about each of those. And sometimes you can't do much. Sometimes all you can do. So I'll I'll give you a few examples from my own life. Um, One of the things that I was worrying about for a long time was that my my suits didn't fit because I had gained some weight. You know, I'm I'm middle aged. I (laughs) I gained some weight, and I was like, what can I do about this? Because I had been dieting and dieting, and I couldn't. And it was just making my life miserable. And I thought, you know what I could do is I could get my suits adjusted, and I did. And then I stopped worrying about it. So that was one thing. Another thing, uh, the second lockdown in London, I was so frustrated at not being able to leave my house. I was just tired of working from home. So what could I do about it? Well, um, in the morning before I started work, I would go to the tube station, run up and down the stairs a couple of times, come home and then sit down in my home office. And I felt like, oh, okay, I've gotten out of the house. I kind of have a little fake commute. You know, and that's what I mean by think about what you can actually do. And Covey gives a great example of these people who have a micromanaging boss and they hate their boss um, and they're always complaining about him. But there's one person who doesn't complain, who instead just takes the work that he's given and tries to perform 110%. And after a while, the boss goes, you know, there's something different about this guy. I don't think I'm going to micromanage him anymore. That's what I mean by focusing on, like, I can't change my boss's behavior. I can't change my boss's personality. So why complain about it? That that just makes me more upset. I'm going to just focus on my own work, focus on my own attitude, like don't get upset about it because who is that helping and just do the work. And then ultimately your circle of influence gets bigger. 
I, I just love that point constant and the whole idea, I think, of, okay, if you're in a job and it's not working out, you say your boss is not great, you, you try your best, may, maybe you, it can turn around, he or she may uh, change their attitude towards you. But by working hard, you still achieved a great deal. You've got experience, you've maybe worked on some different clients, and then it's easier for you to leave the firm if you need to. And I yeah. think it's that whole idea of, you know, whatever situation you're in, you can always learn, you can always get better. And I think waiting for somebody else to give you a, a silver bullet or a magic pill to change your life around, is just not going to happen. Um, yeah. You know, like some people are waiting for their ideal partner to, to come, you know, you've got to yeah. get out there, you've got to go and look for them. So yeah, um, yeah no, I, I just love that whole idea of, uh, of control. Are, are there any other sort of thoughts from the book that um, I, th- I think we've gone through most of them? I think a concluding point with influence is, is really pick your battles because upward influence is hard. Like you're, you're trying to influence someone who has no obligation to listen to you. So pick your battles, really focus on the stuff that's important because if it's important, you'll have the motivation and it'll be worth investing the time. It takes time. It really does take time to, to make these things happen, to make these changes happen. So pick your battles, be patient, and hopefully you'll achieve the change I, that you yeah, want. And I love that point about picking your battles, because I think you also have to look at the reality of that situation. Yes. And it really can be that, look, your boss, he or she is not never going to promote you for whatever reason. Exactly. And then you need to figure out, okay, this is the way it is. Um, yep. and ha- create some sort of exit strategy. Because I I, yeah. I I think there are a lot of people who are, I'm not saying they're delusional, but they're waiting for something to happen, which is just not going to happen. Mm-hmm. And I think you just have to look at the reality of the situation and say, look, it's sad, but it is what it is. Um, I hate that phrase, but it is what it is. And just, yeah. just move on. Yeah. And even the most painful situations, because I've had some horrible jobs, even the most painful situations, you can get something out of it. Totally. So one thing I think we forgot to talk about is uh, Robert Cialdini's book on, on mm. influence, which, which I think you talk about in, in your book itself. Um, and I, I frequently refer to it in, in pr- pr- pretty much every second podcast I do. So um, I didn't really want to touch on that because I think my listeners yep. probably have heard more than enough of that. But obviously, you know, I, I love, love his work. Um, and it's great that you mentioned that in, in the book. Yeah, I think it's a nice way of when you're thinking about how do I phrase things or how do I frame things, it's it's very useful. Brilliant. Content, obviously, we're coming up to the end of our time. Um, are there any sort of other strategies or thoughts that you'd like to share on careers, either looking for jobs or just developing in your career? So I often have students asking me, should I apply for this job or this job? I don't know which one I'm interested in. And I often say to them, especially if they have very little experience, apply for both. Because when you don't know, when you really don't know, and you also don't have much experience, then let the universe decide for you. Like, just apply and see what happens. Oh, I, I just love that thought. You know, that's completely what I, I think, Constantine. Just like chuck it out there. And and it's funny with this podcast, when I started it, I thought I'll probably do it for five episodes. Nobody really will care, but that's not the point. And now, as I said, I think one episode 31. Um, and I've gone on a couple of uh, podcasting lists completely out of the blue. And it's funny how, you know, you don't intend for this to happen. And, and I thought, my mm-hmm. God, I'm not particularly creative, but obviously the auditing and accountability from the LSE. <laughs> that helped. <laughs> Thank yeah. you, Dr. Mike Power. Yeah. 
And, and, and before we wrap up, Constant, is there anybody you'd like to give a shout out to? I think all LSE students and alumni. Very good. Very good. They are uh, my biggest fans. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and by the way, all your details will appear on the show notes. And mm-hmm. I'm sorry, what I forgot to mention is that you do this um, great course for The Guardian, this masterclass. Mm-hmm. I've had my personal Perfect. masterclass, but yeah. um, I would definitely tell the listeners out there, it sounds like a great thing to go along to. Yeah, it's just a two-hour talk, but yeah, it's I, I do it twice a year. Cool, very good. Anyway, Constant, yeah. um, I really appreciate uh, you spending the time today. Um, I'm sure um, I've certainly got a lot uh, out of you know, talking to you and the book, and I'm sure our listeners uh, will also get a great deal. Thank so, you. Th- thank you so much. Have a great rest of the day. You too. Thank you so much for listening and staying to the end. That was such an enjoyable interview. If you would like to listen to more episodes, then please consider subscribing to the podcast, which is available on your favorite providers, and subscription is free. If you wish to learn more about any of the resources mentioned in this episode, please take a look at the show notes, which are available online. Thanks once again for listening. Stay safe and look after yourself. I hope you will join me again in the future.